In a world rife with cascading crises, macroeconomic fragmentation, retreating development, multilateralism under attack, and of course, the defining challenge of the age, climate change, maritime trade serves as a stabilizing anchor, holding fast against the turbulent currents of disruption. But it is changing, we know that. Russia's invasion of Ukraine shifted trade lanes, in terms of grain, obviously, but it has also increased the distances traveled by tankers as the Russian Federation sought new export markets for its cargo and Europe looked for alternative energy suppliers. The death of deglobalization may have been somewhat overstated, but it is changing. There are now shifts that are visible in the data towards various forms of de-risking or supply chain resilience measures, however you're going to call them. Goods continue to be produced through complex supply chains. Yes, we know that. But the extent of these supply chains, they may have plateaued, at least in the short run. Friendshoring, nearshoring, reshoring, however you want to label it, it is changing trade lanes. The bigger consequences to all this is that continued fragmentation of global trade norms, a long-term challenge to the multilateralism that has defined the rules-based order that oversaw globalized trade to this point, that's all under discussion now. A rise in protectionist policy and regional block trade facilitation agreements promises increased fragmentation, uncertainty, and more complexities. As we all watch with well-founded fears at the events happening in the Middle East this week, it is easy enough to see where the tipping points of immediate change lie. But the longer-term developments, they're more complex and slower to show themselves. In this week's podcast, I started that conversation, part of that conversation, around these themes with two experts who I think offer a pretty compelling view on the challenges that lie ahead for all of us. It's by no means a complete view, and there are various threads that I intend to start pulling on over future episodes, possibly into next year. But for today, I'm going to introduce you to one old friend of the podcast, Jan Hoffman, Head of Trade and Logistics Branch at UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Uh, and I'm also going to introduce a new voice, Jan's colleague, Shamika Shiramani. Now, Shamika is the Director of the Division on Technology and Logistics at UNCTAD, and she leads UNCTAD's Trade Logistics Programme. I caught up with them in London at the International Maritime Organization, as it happens. Um, this was as UNCTAD were unveiling their annual review of maritime transport data. This is a deep dive view into the data-led trends that are shaving shipping. And for those people like me who enjoy poring over such details, it is a fascinating read, which I can highly recommend. Although I will accept that the 130 pages of stats isn't everybody's cup of tea. But anyway, that's not what this edition is about. This is a discussion about where we find those tipping points and what that means. And here's Jan to get us started on that theme. Okay. Um... I mean, the, the, the big tipping point is that we have an energy transition where the new fuels are economically less efficient than the previous fuels. While all the previous energy transitions from wind to coal, from coal to oil and so on, um, were uh, self-funded. And here, these ones will only be self-funded if you include the total cost, meaning the external cost meaning the polluter-pace principle. And if we manage this, then I think this is a major tipping point. And a lot of this also has to do with technology, how to do it, how to transmit it. And, and there I think 
Shamika has a lot of knowledge and experience with the wider areas that the division is working on, on digitalization, on port co-optimization, on, on AI and, and that type of thing. It's, it's, I think it goes together as the big picture you were asking about. So, I mean, honestly, the big tipping point is about climate. Huh? You know, it's a tipping point for the species. It's not just for shipping. So that's, as Jan said, that's, that's the one that is staring in our eyes and we simply don't know what to do. And in shipping, there are other things. The digitalization is going to be a, a big force. Uh, the whole supply chain de-risking, this nearshoring, reshoring, you know, there's a lot of talk and we haven't really seen a lot of impact. We see a slowly, some reshoring is happening, nearshoring is happening in some places and that will affect the industry as it goes forward. And to our surprise, we, what, one of the things that we also found is this whole e-commerce. Mm. You know, yes, we are ordering things online, but they need to be delivered in ships. And we saw that this, the whole revolution e-commerce revolution, Peloton machines, you know, go, going across Atlantic started during COVID-19, but that's, it's here to stay. It's not just a COVID-19 thing. And that's, people are now used to doing e-commerce. So that's another way. And, and, and I am saying it's, it's an important point because the whole point of e-commerce is the very fast delivery. You know, people are not going to wait for three, four, five, six months to get their goods. So that is also going to affect, you know, the whole shipping industry. How do we make sure that these goods that ordered are delivered really fast? So there are several things, you know, I mean, the biggest tipping point is, of course, of our survival, our, you know, the existential threat of the climate. But there are a lot of other big forces are at play at the same time in the shipping industry, and they will all shape uh, where the industry is going. Now, that long and detailed report I referred to at the top of the podcast, it's a retrospective view of trade data, and therefore it hasn't been considered the most newsworthy of documents over the years. And I'm being polite to Jan here because he's very much involved in this. But the reason I'm bringing this to you is trade is changing, and this look at what is happening to global trade through the lens of this report, well, it's actually much more important than it has been in the past. Yeah, about the, the long term and, and short term, it is true that uh, between researching and writing and getting data and when the review is out once per year, it's difficult to have it as news. Uh, but I think in most recent years, we have managed to actually find out new things, like like the impact on inflation was something where we were actually first saying these high logistics costs increase will lead to high inflation when Paul Krugman and others were still saying don't worry about inflation. The issue of the distance and some of these geography of trade, yes, they are from year to year a few percentage points, but by looking, leaning back and and putting it visual, we produce news also. No? But at the same time, yes, it's, it's a reference document. We, we, are, we hope something will be reported today, tomorrow, in a few days. But then if in five months from now, somebody needs underlying data, this is also in the report. But, but I appreciate um, you, Richard, personally and Lloyd, you are trying to see the, the major shifts and being a bit ahead of, ahead of the curve and, and seeing what's happening. And, 
And yeah, I think we are, we are, we are in the same, we are trying the same. <laughs> I agree with Jan. I think the long-term view, when you're looking at these changes to trade lines, it's massively important. We've heard a lot from politicians in the wake of the COVID-induced supply chain crisis that resilience is being built in as a result of the lessons that have been learned, apparently. Now, the evidence of what that means in practice, that has been pretty scant, but it is now finally starting to show itself in the data. So-called friendshoring, meaning the act of manufacturing and sourcing from countries that are geopolitical allies, that effectively makes it a synonym for a trade block. That is happening to a point. It is part of the risk reduction strategies being employed by governments to diversify. And Mexico and Vietnam are often cited as, as big, obvious examples. We see much more regional integration efforts also as part of these trade trends. Not at the scale that some had predicted, but we see a renewal for the narrative of policy that demands regional integration, shall we say. Here, Africa, I guess, is the best example, where the continental free trade area is an obvious case in point. And that is all going to have implications in terms of logistics and maritime transport. Now, is that diversification enough to make global supply chains more resilient? Hmm, well, that is a big question. Adaptability is the priority for shipping as much as resilience. The overriding theme here, however, is wherever we find these tipping points, it is a series of interconnected problems that we're talking about. This is not a single issue at play here. And the industry needs a multilateral approach in order to deal with it. But just at the point that we need the institutions that support these discussions, they are withering. The danger occurs when you tackle these things in isolation. Any one part of these moving targets could be to the detriment of globalized trade. I think that's why we say a multilateral approach is needed. As you said, it just cannot be the, only the shipping, ship owners or the, the, the flag-carrying mm. uh, countries. It has to be a conversation like what is happening at the IMO. Everybody has to come to the table and have a conversation. And uh, you see, so it is not just about shipping. Huh? It is about the adaptation. It's about financing, investment. And where is this investment is coming from? It is not just the shipping industry. I mean, yes, we would we would like to see some sort of economic instruments for for reduction of emissions, uh, like a levy or some sort of contribution based on the emissions. And we would like to we like to see that such a such a fund is being used for adaptation of developing countries, especially the most vulnerable countries the small island developing nations and the least developed countries. Uh, but it may not be enough because the investments for adaptation to the climate change, uh, you know, investment needs are massive. And we also need to mobilize the multilateral development banks, the regional development banks, uh, to start investing more and more in these areas. For the longest time, these banks have been investing, I mean, rightly so, uh, in social sectors, uh, because it's extremely important. The health, the education, these are extremely important for developing countries. Uh, and also the development partners, donors, the focus has been a lot on the social sectors. But as we go forward, they also need to look into 
the the economic sectors you know the investments in ports investments in uh, you know other related areas the multimodal uh, transport areas because this is where uh, the lot of adaptation will take place so as a whole a new way of thinking uh, we'll have to come to the fore because the if you are a least developed country and i don't think you have this public uh, resources huh, to to do massive uh, you know uh, climate adaptations at ports when you also need to give vaccines to your children or to get them into primary schools so you know these are very difficult uh, priorities for 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 developing countries especially the low income countries so are we set up as an industry to have those conversations that's what i'm asking here we're looking at this today through the lens of UNCTAD. And I should point out that we recorded this conversation inside the IMO building in London. So there is an obvious multilateral theme here. But we're talking at a point when these institutions and many others like them are very challenged. Interesting factoid here. The World Bank is a fifth of the size that it was in the 1960s. Most international bodies, frankly, are suffering from underfunding. The question I pose to these guys is, do we need more firepower for these multilateral conversations? Definitely, we need more firepower. And it's not just among the among ourselves, the UN staff, but it is we are also looking up to to you, the journalist, to you know bring a lot more awareness. We need a lot more greater Thunbergs to to create the social activism because ultimately that's what will uh, that's what will change huh? the minds of politicians that's what will change the you know these movements have changed the way countries think the way the legislations have been done and we have seen this in the past and we need all that we need us you know mm. doing analysis like this in the in the review of maritime transport saying this is what the data tells us so that's the UN's job, and but our job is just to build awareness among member states so that the member states will come and start talking. But the member states are very much driven by their own populations. Huh? So this is where mm. we need the social activism. This is where we need the journalists to take the fore and to highlight these issues in, the, in national media. Given that we're talking today about the tipping points in global trade, it's worth noting that global trade as it stands today despite all of the talk of digitalization, is actually still very analog, still very inefficient as well. How far advanced are we in that trade digitalization conversation? Well, probably not as far as you might think, because I think when shipping talks about digitalization, they're thinking about AI, uh, fleet optimization, things like that, which is valid. But the biggest question of how we make trade more efficient, that's a question of trade finance and trade facilitation documents. And in that respect, we are still in the dark ages. You know, the red tape in trade is really preventing small and medium enterprises even thinking of engaging in international trade. It's, mm. they would not even think, they would rather sell domestically their goods rather than engaging in lucrative exports because they simply cannot bypass these millions of forms and the fees that they have to pay. So in UNCTAD, for example, we have a program called ASICUDA, where we are helping countries to automate customs and increasingly automate all trade procedures 
through these electronic single windows for countries. Uh, and these programs are in, you know, we are in 102 countries and territories, and we see the digitalization at customs, you know, is happening quite fast. But the rest of the governments we see are not ready because they don't have the same capabilities, the, the skills, the IT skills that the customs has. You know, many government departments don't have. So that's where things are stuck. Um, so we f we see that the, the, the automation would create better trade facilitation uh, environment, and that would then create a lot more possibilities for small medium enterprises, especially women-led enterprises to engage in international trade. Because women are, the small enterprises led by women are quite not keen to be, you know, be engaged in international trade right now. You see, much of the di digitalization of um, trade processes and procedures are happening at the national level. At the international cross-border is another story. But to have the cross-border digitalization, you need the whole data governance systems, and which is lacking, because we need to make sure that the data that cross the data that cross borders are you know are protected. And that's not there. So the lot of digitalization now happens within national borders. The final point I want to get to on today's edition is the point where we started, talking about shifting trade lanes and the resilience efforts and shifts in who countries are prepared to trade with. Here's Jan with a few concluding thoughts. I think there was talk about, again, the, the new normal, um, the, the resilience building that we see is above all a diversification. And, and that the trade data shows and our shipping data shows. Uh, in some cases, especially containerized trade, uh, actually, if the distance is going down because you have more intra-regional Asian, Asian trades, the, the, the near-shoring. Um, and then one thing we haven't yet discussed too much, but linking to what Shamika said about digital solutions. Um, a lot of the problems we had during COVID led to positive improvements, investments in more and new digital solutions, e-signatures, risk management, pre-arrival processing, which also make the whole supply chains more resilient in future. So mm. we have to lock in the progress made during lockdown <laughs> and, and keep that, that positive, uh, yeah, these improvements even beyond COVID. Okay, well, that's where we're going to leave it for this week's edition on a relatively positive note. But as I say, we're going to be coming back to these topics uh, over coming weeks. I'm going to be out in Athens next week. I know it's a hard life, but I will be working very hard to bring you insights and voices from within the Global Maritime Forum. Expect much deliberation about decarbonisation and probably a few snide remarks about dinosaurs and extinction. My thanks to Jan and Shamika for submitting to my endless questions. Uh, my thanks to you, as ever, for listening. If there's anyone out there listening who is going to be joining me in Athens next week, please do come along and say hello. Uh, for the rest of you, I will be with you shortly. But in the meantime, have a good weekend. Bye.